0: We thought that the coronavirus crisis was winding down, but it turns out it had only just begun. In the rural region of New York State that has been my lifelong home, we entered phase four of the reopening process recently. That means that many retail stores can be open if they have plans for social distancing in place. You can get a haircut now, or a tattoo, or go to the dentist. Restaurants can have dine-in customers again, but only at 50% capacity. People are still legally required to wear masks on their faces whenever they enter a business, but many people are now refusing to do so. In some areas, there's a sense that the coronavirus has already been defeated. In my area, new coronavirus diagnoses are down to practically zero. Nonetheless, in other parts of the United States and in other parts of the world, positive tests for the COVID-19 virus are increasing dramatically. In some places, like Texas, it's clear that there is an increase in actual infections because hospitalizations are on the rise. In other places, people wonder whether the increase in diagnosis might simply be a result of the increase in testing for the virus. The central characteristic of the COVID-19 experience remains. We still don't know what's happening. We still can't see what's going on. Welcome to Beyond Back to Normal, a podcast that shares the ideas uncovered through a study of the impact of the coronavirus crisis on business culture. My name is Jonathan Cook, the researcher who conducted the interviews from which this podcast is constructed. Last time on this podcast, research participants discussed the underlying structural problem of economic inequality that predated the coronavirus pandemic and is being made worse by it. The dangers perceived by the people I interviewed go far beyond problems in the distribution of wealth, however. They shared concerns about the unsustainability of conventional models of business as well. Sustainability is an environmental concept, of course. Detail-oriented people in the business world may object to the use of concepts such as sustainability, arguing that the world of commerce isn't part of the natural world. That's where they're mistaken. Business is a part of the natural world, not separate from it. The term business ecosystem is used as metaphor, conceptualizing business relationships as if they were similar to natural ecosystems. This understanding, however, pretends that businesses somehow manufacture products and design services from materials that appear out of thin air. In fact, every business, even the most abstract digital enterprise, is heavily dependent upon products and services that are taken from biological ecosystems. Ralph Talmont of Boma International in Poland identifies an imbalance in these businesses. Unlike most organisms, which consume and are consumed in return, big businesses take from the biological ecosystems of the earth but don't give back in return.
1: These industries that, that are the, the lifeblood of our economies, oil is the blood that, that circulates through the, uh, the body of business, and all those, all those metaphors, they are so utterly false that is, it's actually quite hilarious. None of those businesses would exist were it not for subsidies from the, the public purse to keep them afloat. They would have long since ceased to exist were it not for billions that have been pumped into the Shells and the Chevrons and the, the ExxonMobils and the BPs. Your taxes at work, my friend, and mine too. We have those as well. You know, This is not a, a uniquely Anglo-American and Dutch <laughs> phenomenon you know this part of the world we have them too so these are not sustainable businesses in fact these are not good businesses because i mean quite apart from the fact that the the stuff they they dig up is toxic these are not good businesses they are not sustainable unless governments pump money into them how is that a good business i don't know as ralph indicates Ecological unsustainability
0: tends to be associated with economic unsustainability. Many business leaders who claim to oppose socialism nonetheless accept enormous government handouts to keep their companies from going bankrupt. These businesses are both ecologically and economically unhealthy and are kept alive only through massive interventions. One of the central measures of the health of an ecosystem is biodiversity. Complex ecosystems consisting of relationships between a large number of species tend to be more resilient than simple ecosystems dominated by just a few species. Martin Siazelski, founder of the School of Nothing, observes that the world of business consists of simple ecosystems dominated by just a few extremely large companies that fill huge areas of the economy with brittle monocultures.
2: Our whole organic system is kind of a monoculture itself and so we are really not strong enough to survive in the, in the real world of this planet. So we are kind of supported right now by a very artificial system so that we can live our lives. And this is under, under attack and, I, and it seems to me that it's not going to make it. And then comes the question, okay, what kind of society can we live in uh, which is supportive to the planet and which this planet can support in a, in a more healthy way? I think one of the monocultures is our monetary system, which is a monoculture itself, right? And by having that installed, we have a monoculture of markets. And markets, especially, you know, who markets dealing with, you know, making more money or uh, profit, you know, profitability. And this is a very monoculture and thinking, I guess. If you go right now through a supermarket, for example, and you look really, really close, you see that most of the stuff you buy there is made out of wheat and sugar. So you have wheat, sugar, and some vegetables and fruits, which are not really vegetables and fruits anymore, if you look what kind of vitamins they have. So it's it's a really, really very monoculturally um, built business world and, and world of economies we are in. And I think this is also that we should, should wake up to and see that it's not as diverse as we want to see it and it's not as stable as we want to see it.
0: Martin sees grocery stores filled with iterations of just a few unhealthy ingredients. Just so, digital business suffers from a glut of fillers with low nutritional value. Facebook, Google, and Amazon. Business culture has... Progressively replaced ecological diversity with monocultures, with a small number of identical products and services dominating all over the world. Figuratively and literally, the breadth of the DNA that businesses work with has narrowed dramatically, with insufficient capacity to respond when crisis strikes Business monocultures reduce complexity and reduce productivity by concentrating resources and replacing adaptive diversity with a stiff, standardized simplicity. Healthy ecosystems last for millions of years. Businesses fall apart in a matter of decades, leaving environmental and social wreckage in their wake. Digital business hasn't created a more stable, sustainable business solution, but has only made the problem worse. The monoculture has also led to an unhealthy reliance on fossil fuels for energy. The drive to scale has had real-world consequences, most prominently in the development of climate change, a crisis that many research participants perceive as a kind of comorbidity of COVID-19. Martin explains.
2: Maybe we will reflect at a certain point that we behaved like that virus to other species and nature. You know, when we, when we claimed about the climate issue, then I think this is exactly what happened. The, the mankind stressed the planet so hard like the virus is doing now with us. And and the virus is maybe even harmless against, you know, compared to what we did to other species and the planet. And this kind of, you know, this kind of relationships and, and energies and, and forces up to a certain moment, uh, I would say up to the moment that corona showed up in China and also in our environment, those forces kind of were also invisible, you know, or at least we kind of, Um, suppress them or put them into our unconsciousness or our culture, explain them away or whatever. But I think now we're facing the real forces, the forces uh, we put at nature and the planet and the planet is now closing the feedback loop, you know, with, with this virus. And, you know, I don't want to talk about Gaia or something like that, which, which I, you know, might agree at a certain point with, but, I think there are just some feedback loops close and now we get something that we did before and it was it was kind of invisible to us and now it becomes something we can feel,
1: we are
0: afraid of. Martin isn't alone in perceiving a link between climate change and COVID-19. Kim Arazzi, founder of The Virtual Table, shares the following warning.
3: And I think what we're seeing is, is really a, a cry from the universe who has tried in so many ways to show, now, to show us that we've taken things too far and that our values are completely upside down. Um, we both as businesses and individuals have become completely selfish individualists. We're only focusing on our image, whether it's our personal image or our, our business image and our profits and how much we can make. And we have You know, no regard for the environment. That's secondary. We've continued to use and abuse it as if it's some disposable resource. And we really don't even care about our fellow humans, really. Everyone's in this for themselves. And this is demonstrated in the leadership that's currently in power around the world. So I think we brought that on us. We can't blame anyone else. Those people that are in power are representing society. And I always like to, to make analogies and I think, if we look at and, and this is very close because we're talking about a physical virus but when we take the analogy of the human body when something is wrong in our body it alerts us through symptoms right we might get a stomach ache, a fever headache or even a heart attack or even god forbid cancer right but all these symptoms or diseases are a wake-up call right to get us to pay attention to our bodies in order to save ourselves from something much more serious like we could die
0: Kim suggests that just as the COVID-19 virus shows its presence in the human body through alarming symptoms, the COVID-19 pandemic itself is a symptom of an underlying disease in human society. It's a wake-up call, a warning that if we don't change our ways, death is on the way. Is death on its way? Parts of Siberia north of the Arctic Circle reached above 100 degrees Fahrenheit this summer. During the pandemic, the Great Barrier Reef of Australia suffered its most severe bleaching event ever. Climate change is smashing apart the world that we knew. Kim isn't the only one with death on her mind. American UX researcher Amy Santi takes note of the way that the coronavirus pandemic has led people in business to consider their mortality, forcefully removing them from their usual center of action and directing their gaze uncomfortably in the direction of death.
4: People saying, like, be productive always with all this free time, it doesn't, that doesn't quite match with the reality of what's going on. And I also think, like, just sitting around doing nothing is really important in general in life, but especially now where, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to feel like you need to use all of your time for something. And that, I think that relates to people facing their mortality even more these days where they're like, oh, shit, like, I could die or... I'm going to die sometime, (laughs) and the grief that we're all experiencing with the loss of the world as we knew it, I think we're more forced to think about that because, again, mortality, human life is ephemeral, and 100,000 people at minimum are going to die in our country.
0: I interviewed Amy back in the early springtime when 100,000 American deaths from the coronavirus, seemed like an incredible number. Actually, it was an underestimate. As of the day I'm releasing this podcast, 134,000 Americans have died as a result of their infection with COVID-19, and more deaths are to come. More than three times that many people have died as a result of the pandemic elsewhere in the world. Of course, it isn't just people who die. Eventually, every business perishes as well, and they're dying off more quickly than they used to. In the 1950s, the average lifespan of a company in the S&P 500 was 60 years. Last year, according to an analysis by the Santa Fe Institute, The average lifespan of a company in the S&P was only 10 years. The statistics for this year are not yet available, but surely this trend has accelerated. Business runs on optimism, but to be optimistic in times like this is a kind of insanity. While people are dying, businesses are closing down permanently at a mind-boggling pace. The culture of business works with the mythology of the potential for infinite growth. But as Marcus Leto, co-founder of Joint Idea, has seen, COVID-19 has forced business to look death in the face.
5: It's like the ultimate challenge. You know, this is one of the things that is, you know, core to our ability is obviously our breath and our ability to metabolize oxygen and, and take, you know, strength and aliveness from them. You know it's kind of like looking death in the face i suppose you could say so i mean it's if the biggest fear in the world is that of dying and if the thing that we need
0: more than anything to stay alive is our breath uh, you know we're coming pretty close to a a near-death experience business leaders prefer to emphasize growth but now they're forced to acknowledge the ultimate end to growth anthony howard of the socratic leadership academy talked to me about the way that denial of death has been at the core of the culture of business, though the coronavirus crisis is challenging that privileged position.
6: One of the things that's really highlighted in this whole pandemic is that we are trying to use technological means to defeat death. And we're running from our fear of death. And because the boomers have tried to use vitamins, healthcare, all manner of things to extend life, the boomers do not cope cope with death well at all. And the boomers, of course, broadly are in control of, you know, governments and companies and so forth, and they're afraid of death. And therefore, we're unable to confront death. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, we shouldn't be doing what we're doing to, you know, we don't want death to run rampant and, you know, paralyze our hospitals and all that kind of thing. But I believe what's underneath a lot of this is a fear of death, which is a fear of finitude or our own mortality. And so because we're operating with a time mindset that says, you know, I have a limited amount of time, but actually I'm a smart guy. And me plus technology can extend that amount of time that I have. And the, the coronavirus is another example of something that I think I can manage with technology. So next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an app which we can use for social distancing to continue to, you know, make sure we stay alive as long as we possible can. You know, it's only when we confront death ultimately, you know, at an existential kind of level. I don't mean at at the, at the moment of dying, but you know, the moment we can kind of look in the mirror and say, Hey, I'm mortal. I am going to die. I have a limited amount of time. It's only then that we can transform our lives and live the moment in an expanded sense. As long as we live, you know, with that moment confronting us in the future, we live in this, with this sense of finitude and we do everything we can to, to extend that chronological sense of time.
0: What relevance to the culture of business is death? Death is around us all the time. As you listen to this podcast, you may hear the sound of birds in the background, and that's because I am recording right now in the gardens of Mary Spring Nature Center, in Camden, Maine. Merry Spring is a cheery name, and all around me are flowers in bloom. A gentle mist floats across the scene from the adjacent woods. But even in the middle of this scene, I know that in just two months from now, autumn will arrive. Flowers will stop blooming. Leaves will turn color and fall to the ground, leaving branches bare as the frosts arrive, transforming soothing mists into cutting cold crystal. As Anthony Howard
6: says, death is the one certainty of life. Death is that ultimate thing over which we have no control. Now, of course, there's many other things we have no control over, but but death is really it, you know? And we know it's going to come unexpectedly. And if we get unwell, we know it's going to come eventually, but we still don't actually know. It's it's way beyond our control. And we do not like having things out of our control. And so to embrace that reality, in essence, disempowers death. And once you've disempowered death, you can live the fullness of life. What are people going to say when you die? Let's take some time out. You take some time out and write your eulogy what are your close friends and family going to say what are your work colleagues going to say what are people who maybe you didn't know but came across you in the community or whatever what are they going to say you know the um, spanish poet Juan Ramirez said you know i am that which remains standing when i die what is going to remain standing and when people do that kind of exercise honestly they have a confrontation with death and mortality You cannot write that without changing your life because the moment you write that you kind of look at your life today and go okay am I living the kind of life if I was to die today I don't have to ask them that question but that question is now thrown up at them by them confronting their mortality.
0: Business is a confidence game that moves forward on the fuel of self-deception. Everything Will not be okay in the end. All's well that ends well, but nothing ends well, not when it really ends. Time does not heal all wounds. Things look bleak now, but if you wait long enough, they're certain to look bleaker. All good things do not come to those who wait. Death comes to us all. We are all dying and our businesses are on the path to ruin. The future is fluid except for our destruction, which is a solid and certain end of all of our stories. We must never forget that doom, but we also must never forget that we are not at the end yet. We are not dead and bankrupt
6: yet. What are we going to do about it? And you can do the same thing for an organization, by the way. You know, why does an organization exist? You know, If this organization was to die, what are people going to say? Are they going to say, well, thank goodness for that. You know, What a mercenary operation that was. I'm glad it's gone. Or are they going to say, what a tragedy. You know, they, they were doing great work. They were doing really good in the world. I'm really sorry to hear they didn't make it. If so, what are you going to do to be that kind of an organization? What kind of leader? What kind of person do you need to be to lead that? What kind of team do you need to build? You don't know if you are going to live or die when it hits. All you know is you've done whatever you can do to maximize your chance of survival. And that's what a lot of businesses did going into this storm. You know, we, we look after our people. We look after the business. We kind of bat in the hatches. We get ready for the storm. We do not know if we're going to live or die. Now, most of us then have passed through the first wall and we're in the eye of the storm. And at the moment, things appear settled. We have to go back out the other side at some point to navigate towards the new, the new future that's beyond this. Now, it won't seem as bad going out the other side because we've already gone through this horrible, horrible, you know, first shock. But there will be another point of transition.
0: As we rest here in the eye of the storm, the future is uncertain. This may seem like an intolerably negative way to look at life. But what Anthony proposes is that we look for a chance to make a positive outcome that's real, rather than a confection consisting of nothing more than fantasy and desperate hope. The confrontation we're having with death is more than just a fearful approach to the end of things. It's a test of whether we're willing to get real, a measure of what we are willing to commit to, to make life worthwhile for as long as it lasts. The question facing professionals in business is what we will do with the time that we have in business, and with the opportunity that we have during the coronavirus crisis to remake business culture into something more worthwhile for all those who participate in it. The tremendous disorientation unleashed by the COVID-19 pandemic has created an improvised ritual experience on a global scale. With the ordinary boundaries of reality taken away, we have entered into a surreal threshold, a liminal zone in which the solid limitations we once assumed to be permanent have become fluid, allowing for new ways of imagining what a business can do and how it can be run. It's one thing to enter a transformational ritual, however, and another thing to complete it successfully. The successful end of a rite of passage takes place only after tests of worthiness have been completed. At the end of the ritual, participants are ready to adopt new social roles, guided by mentors who understand the responsibilities that accompany ritual participants' new identities. Of course, in the improvised ritual of the coronavirus crisis, there are no mentors who understand the future into which we are moving. That makes the test of this unique moment all the more important. What are we going to do with the opportunity for change afforded to us by the massive losses of this crisis? How will we choose to close this ritual. Semiotician Martina Olbertova challenges us to avoid the temptation of falling into efforts to distract ourselves from the call of this moment and instead pursue the self-reflection necessary to articulate a new way of doing the work of life.
4: So I think the ultimate choice would be to choose ourselves and use this time instead of, you know, trying to just watch everything on Netflix and just like numb our minds. We should be much more present in the whatever suffering and the uncertainty and the, I mean, the norm, the sense of normalcy has been sort of like, you know, like stopped, like cold turkey. So people naturally want to escape and feel better, but I think that we should actually not try to do that and do the opposite, which is force ourselves to actually use this time for some kind of conscious self-reflection and realize who we are and where we're going and if the life that we actually created for ourselves serves ourselves. And how we can incorporate all these lessons to become more authentic human beings. And when all this is over, start living, you know, consciously in a way that we actually want and in a way that is good for us. There is a choice. It's just when people start consciously seeing that they are like they serve the system rather than the system serving them. And if we just harness this collective power of all of these, like, individual awakenings, then we can actually offset where the world is headed and how we do things. So I think it's, it's like a major and majorly important point in time to, to use this to sort of offset the direction and choose a different way that actually is good for us.
0: Where will we go now? Martina suggests that we might be able to harness the collective power of individual awakenings. However, though in the early days of the pandemic, people seemed to be pulling together in a self-sacrificial, pro-social kind of behavior, the summer of 2020 has been marked by a re-splintering into competing cultural models. This fracturing of consensus was predicted by anthropologist Pernil Holm Rasmussen.
2: There is this unity that I think will, it will not last. It's very momentarily. It will go away and people will forget and uh, probably a majority will go back to their lives. But I hope that parts of it will stick. That positivity and that care for each other and reaching out a helping hand and s- stop being so selfish and think about how you can be there for other people. I hope that if it just sticks a tiny little bit, then this has been for the better, because then we can push and we can mobilize in much stronger ways than we could before.
0: pernil indicates that, although absolute consensus cannot last, some aspects of shared social purpose can endure, creating a limited time in which we can stick together enough to elevate our individual transformations into positive social change. Of course, we've been here before. In 2008, outrage over rampant abuses in the financial industry and massive bailouts tilting toward big business led to the Occupy Wall Street movement. That movement, however, remained in the liminal sphere of open-ended, directionless process for so long that it was unable to provoke the significant reforms its members had in mind. John Caswell has been thinking back to this movement failure as he watches new movements for transformation emerge during the coronavirus crisis.
5: I remember very painfully well the the 2008 period where Rather like this, I spent a lot of time with a lot of well-meaning people. We came up with a kind of movement which was called the No Dust movement. And it meant, don't let the dust settle on what happened. Don't let the financial industry carry on with the bad practices and the, and the lack of leadership and the cynicism and the, all the things that we found bad about the commercial crisis in 2008. And the dust did settle. You know, nothing was really learned, nothing was really different as a result. This is different because it's, 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 you know, it's affecting people, you know, literally life and death to a lot of people. So let's hope it does create behavioral change. I think what happened in 2008, that didn't happen in 2008 was, there was no accountability. And I think that's what allowed everything just to slip back to normal. And I'm watching now, I think it's perhaps a bit early for me to have any interesting or profound take on this, but I'm hoping that there will become a point where, do you know what, we just have to be a lot more accountable than we we did if we chose 2008 as an example. And of course, you know, that example only holds up for a certain amount of time because this is different, but the underlying systems didn't change, did they? The underlying systems may change if we're, if we're on lockdown for three or four months, because You know, clients are not going to be able to perform, we will not get paid, the economy will tank, the world will be very different,
0: and this will be a no-going-back situation. John Caswell has a special knack for listening to conversations in corporate conference rooms and guiding the conversation beyond platitudes, asking the pivotal questions that can propel an organization forward to meaningful change. Now, during the COVID-19 crisis, John asks the question of what business can do differently. The study upon which this podcast is based focuses on cultural ideas, but cultural ideas are ultimately expressed in concrete action. COVID-19 is challenging businesses to dig deeper and summon a sense of purpose out of the struggle that they're going through. Befitting the subject of death. This is the last episode of the Beyond Back to Normal podcast. Even though death is not final, however, as the research findings from the underlying study are entering another iteration, with the development of a written report sharing more than has been available in this audio format. Stay tuned. The music that opens and closes each episode of Beyond Back to Normal is a song from the instrumental duo Charles Atlas in their 2010 album To the Dust, From Man You Came and to Man You Shall Return. The song is called Corona Norco. Chin up, stay well.